We're walking through 1 Corinthians together and dealing with church challenges that Paul addresses. We've already looked at in the first four chapters the first challenge, spent three sermons talking about that challenge, which is the challenge of division. And in chapters 5 and 6, Paul takes up the second challenge, which is the challenge of immorality, and we will conclude that second challenge with this morning's sermon. The stories that we tell ourselves about our bodies will affect the way we use them. In order to rightly relate to our sexuality, we need to understand God's purpose for our bodies. Our body is the material or physical aspect of our human nature, with the immaterial or spiritual aspect being our soul or our spirit. We need to have a working theology of the human body because it addresses a number of contemporary moral and social issues, not only in the Corinthian church in this day, but in the American culture of our day. Human personhood is up for grabs. Gender dysphoria is a present reality. Transgenderism, dehumanization, objectification, body image issues, obesity epidemic, anorexia and bulimia, compulsive exercise, body modification, selfie dysmorphia, and so many other issues. Perhaps most relevant to our text this morning is the devastation brought on our culture or on any culture when Gnosticism, don't be afraid of that word, we'll talk about it in just a second, or what might be called neo-Gnosticism or new Gnosticism invades our thinking. It invaded the Corinthians' thinking and it's invading the American culture's thinking, even though we might not call it that. What is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is the view that material and physical things, like bodies, are inherently evil at worst or just morally neutral at best. And they're not as important as the immaterial or spiritual realities, the internal things, the psychologized things within us. The Corinthians were dealing with this way of thinking, and in America we're dealing with it today as well. Back in June, an episode of Blues, Clues, and You earned applause for featuring a pride parade of LGBTQ-affirming animals. Only later did viewers notice that one particular cartoon beaver was waving a trans pride flag and had scars like those of women who've had what's called top surgery. A Nickelodeon spokesperson confirmed that the producer's intent was to teach young children that this surgery is normal. And if women wish to have healthy parts removed in order to mimic men, they should. However, the result of the surgery was not a male body, but a wounded and disfigured female one. In this cultural moment, faithfulness to Christ involves not just declaring salvation, but also defending creation. Not just preaching how men and women can be saved, but that men and women exist. It includes saying that this sort of message aimed at children is a form of body shaming and abusive. To say such things in our cultural moment will inevitably bring the charges of 
being transphobic or bigoted or hateful, we may be canceled, but to be silent is not to be loving. It's to be complicit in harm. And as a body of believers, we too need re-education on what it means to be made in God's image, what it means to be male and female, and the difference it makes in modern culture. As God's people, we must be known as those who acknowledge created reality. We must be known as those who tell the truth, particularly about the goodness of the human body that God has created us to have. This won't be easy because what was unthinkable just a couple of decades ago is now normal. Increasingly, the body is seen not as a given by God of reality, but a fully morphable canvas for self-expression. Not only do we celebrate unnatural ways of using it, but we see it as something to be reinvented and remodeled, even mutilated, if it allows us to be who we think we are. Because Christians believe in a world created by God, including the goodness of the human body, we must not allow what is considered normal to seem normal to us. We might be shocked and grieved, but we should always point to the truth of who we are and oppose those ideas which destroy and degrade rather than liberate image bearers. And it's a similar take on the body that contributes to all manner of dysfunction, specifically sexual dysfunction, in the church at Corinth in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20. The reality is that the particular forms of immorality that are being encountered in the church are fueled by underlying beliefs about the nature of the body, what it is and what it's for. And Paul is going to remind them of the gospel perspective on our bodies that is to shape how we use them and how we don't use them. So I think this behind this text is not just the command, flee sexual immorality, although that is a clear command that the apostle gives the church. But we're going to spend most of our time talking about why that is a reasonable and good command based on our bodies, based on who God has made us to be as embodied human beings. It's an important word for our church. It's an important word for our time. So we're going to look at four aspects of this instruction, beginning, first of all, with the particular forms of immorality in verses 15 and 16 that Paul is addressing here in our passage. So let's look at those two verses again. The particular forms of immorality, verse 15 and 16. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? So we see here the particular form that immorality took in the Corinthian church. Apparently, some of the believers in Corinth believed that they could be Christians and they could partake of temple prostitution in the Corinthian culture. But sexual immorality is not just limited to only this, even though that's what's mentioned in verses 15 and 16. We see the particular forms described in last week's passage in verses 9 and 10. Would you look there again? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul broadens out sexual immorality to not just include the visiting of temple prostitutes, but also adultery and homosexuality. So this covers, within these three descriptions, both opposite sex and same-sex immorality with the clear teaching of Scripture that sex is to be reserved within a specific context, that opposite-sex adultery or same-sex homosexuality or unmarried temple prostitution visitation is not within God's will. So what would be God's will? Well, we'll see more about this next week, but look at chapter 7, the first verse. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So what's clear here, and what's clear from the rest of the Bible, is that the appropriate God-given context, and we'll see why this is so critical because of the way God has made us as embodied people, but the fundamental God-pleasing context for the exercise of sexual intimacy is marriage. Man, woman, marriage. That's the clear context that Paul gives in chapter 7, verse 1. And anything outside that context, whether it be opposite sex or of a same-sex orientation, is forbidden by Scripture and by God himself. But I want you to notice that the very first word he mentions after sexual immorality in verse 9 is idolatry. You see that? Verse 9, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Why does Paul slide in idolatry? I mean, shouldn't you be, you've just listed sexual immorality, you've talked about adultery, you've talked about homosexuality. Why not just continue unbroken with that strain of sexual sins? Why throw in idolatry in the middle? He does the same thing in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Notice that. He says, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. And he says in verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater. So Paul can't get out of his own head as he's writing this letter the idea of immorality being connected to idolatry. It's almost like he tacks it on no matter where he's writing about it. He does it again in chapter 10. Would you flip over there real fast? Chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. Talking about the old covenant people of Israel and the ways they committed sexual immorality. Notice what he roots it in. He says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So again, he roots their sexual immorality in their idolatry. Why does he do that? Because I believe that's where sexual immorality is fundamentally rooted. It's rooted in idolatry. To see how this works, I want you to briefly hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 6. We're coming right back. And flip back one book of the Bible to the book of Romans and look at chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I just want to show you two passages that where Paul teaches again and underscores 
where immorality fundamentally comes from. It comes from idolatry first. And then he's going to define for us what he means by idolatry. So we'll begin in verse 23. And exchanged, this is talking about unbelievers, exchanged, they exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So we see it there, don't we? We see idolatry giving rise to immorality. It's idolatry that happens first. The vertical exchange of exchanging the creator God for something else results in the immorality that flows out from it. I want you to see one more passage, verses 25 through 27. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the, women, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So you see again idolatry giving rise to these things. See, vertical idolatry the exchange of God for something else, namely something in the creation, is what fuels the horizontal immorality. It starts with a broken relationship with the Creator, which gives rise to immoral behavior. We're going to talk about why that's critical when we come back to the end of the sermon, about why repairing that relationship with our Creator is so important for us to live the way He's called us to live. Apart from that, we, we are unable to do so. So the particular forms of immorality... Number one. Secondly, the underlying reasons for immorality. Now, we've already talked about idolatry. I'm not going to go over that again. But I want you to see something. This idolatry, this idolatrous behavior, is being governed by certain ways of thinking. Okay? Certain ways of thinking are fueling this idolatry that's leading to immorality. It's not like they just said, okay, I want to commit idolatry. No, there's, there's patterns of thinking that are embedded in them that lead them to make that exchange of God for creation. Three times in our passage this morning and six times in the whole of chapter 6, Paul uses the following phrase, Do you not know? 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 Why does he say this over and over again? Because... Patterns of thinking affect patterns of living. What we think about and how we think about God, our bodies, our relationship between those two things affects the way we use them. So the Corinthians had developed some false views of spiritual and sexual freedom that was leading them to make decisions about what they were doing with their body. I want to show you two particular forms of thinking that were affecting them, two underlying reasons that were driving this idolatry and driving this immorality. First of all, grace and works are unconnected. Grace and works are unconnected. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. This is Paul quoting the Corinthians back to themselves. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, Paul says. The Corinthians respond, all things are lawful for me, but Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. 
so all things are lawful for me. This was a common catchphrase in the Corinthian culture and in the Corinthian church. And it was sort of this declaration of libertinism. This declaration that I am at liberty to do what I want. The Corinthians believed that they had the right to do anything since salvation is a free gift. They had a false view of Christian liberty, believing that since they were not under any kind of Mosaic law, just about everything they wanted to do was permissible. We call this antinomianism. Anti, against, nomos, Greek word for law. So antinomian, against the law. Antinomianism, being against the law, misconstrues grace and turns it into a license to sin. Instead of seeing our freedom in Christ as the liberty to do what is right, which is the essence of God's own freedom and thus our own true liberty, antinomians see freedom as the liberty to do whatever we want even when our desires oppose God's word. So, of course, freedom from the law entails freedom from its condemnation, but it does not include freedom from any obligation to obey the Lord. Jesus himself told us as much in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So Paul argues here that what should govern our thinking is not just, well, all things are lawful for me, but what is beneficial to others. See, the Corinthians were thinking only in a legal framework. They were saying, all things are lawful for me. But Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things are helpful. We aren't just to operate out of this legal framework, but a relational framework. We aren't just to ask, how close can I get to the line and not cross it? But what is the way I can most helpfully love and serve others? Paul's clear here and elsewhere in this letter that love is to govern our behavior. Notice chapter 7, verse 35, where he says, I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's saying things to secure obedience to Jesus, not contrary to obedience to Jesus. He says again in chapter 10, verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He says again in chapter 12, verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So all of our Christianity is to be governed by this question of, is it beneficial? Does it love my brothers and sisters in Christ well? They didn't see it that way because they saw grace and works as being unconnected. Secondly, they saw the body and soul as being unconnected. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Another, another Corinthian quotation. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. See, food is for the stomach. The Corinthians just believed that sex was just an appetite to be fulfilled. It was like food. It's, physical, it's a physical act, like eating and digesting food, and it had no bearing on your spiritual life at all. So neither would they see the way that they use their bodies as any way affecting their souls. They were using this to argue that they could do whatever they wanted, and that whatever they did with their bodies 
could not truly affect their spiritual condition. It was just an appetite. It was just a craving. It was just bodily urges. How often do we hear that today? Nothing more than that. The heart wants what the heart wants. It seems they made a radical distinction between the body and the soul, saying that since God would destroy the body and not the soul, they could do whatever they wanted with their physical bodies without harming the soul. And Paul makes a point that God is concerned both with the body and the soul. The Corinthians have adopted from the culture around them the idea that the body is permitted to have everything that it craves. But Paul answers the Corinthians' slogan by noting that if we think we may do whatever our fallen hearts desire, we will do things that are not helpful, we will do things that are not beneficial to others, and we will end up enslaved to what we sinfully pursue. Paul makes clear that their particular forms of immorality were not benefiting others and were particularly enslaving and addictive when indulged. We'll see why as we come later in our text. So those are some of the underlying reasons that were giving rise to that idolatry that was giving rise to that immorality. It was that grace and works were unconnected and the body and soul were unconnected. Thirdly, we come to the gospel perspective on immorality in verses 14 to 20. Now here, Paul is going to encounter their underlying reasons for immorality with the correct gospel perspective. Do you not know? 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 Six times. That perspective involves helping them understand contrary to their ways of thinking that the body and soul were unconnected, there is a deep connectedness between our bodies and our souls. The perspective involves helping them see this connectedness. The main issue is to understand that the Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. That is, the body is for the Lord by original creation and the Lord is for the body by promising a new creation. He intends to keep our body and our soul connected for all eternity. It's not just a part of us. It is us. You are body and soul. Not, it's not just your, your body is not just a casing for your more important part of you. Your body is you. It's not to be separated. And we know we'll talk about in the intermediate state that it is separated but it's intended to be joined back together because God's purpose is for an embodied humanity that consists of both soul and body. So I want us to look at four perspectives, four gospel, actually five, five gospel perspectives that Paul gives them concerning why the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body, first of all, and how this should affect the present use of our bodies. First of all, the future resurrection of your body should affect the present use of your body. The future resurrection of your body should affect the present use of your body. Look at verse 14. Paul says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So we know some Corinthians, according to chapter 15, verse 12, were doubting the resurrection. But here, Paul reminds them that Jesus' resurrection was only the first step in the general general resurrection of God's people that will occur on the last day. Jesus' body and the believer's body 
are eternal. For God will also raise us up, and the eternal nature of the believer's body should affect our present behavior. We'll get into all of that when we get to chapter 15. I don't have time this morning to discuss all the extensive details of that. But I just want you to see that Paul is stressing here, and God is underscoring the fact that our bodies are eternal. They will be raised. They are meant to be part of us and with us for eternity. Death is an intruder that at the end of our earthly existence results in the cessation of our body's proper functioning. And after death, which is the temporary separation of the body, we live in an abnormal condition of disembodiment. Our soul goes to be with the Lord, our bodies reside in the earth. But at the return of Christ, the accompanying event will be the resurrection of our bodies, where we will be re-embodied once more, and in the final resurrection, we'll, our bodies will be glorified and made to be like Jesus, fully bearing the image of the glorified one. We will have perfected bodies, free from the effects of sin. Because these will be the bodies we have now, the present body you live in, though affected and fallen and decaying, will be raised. That body, this body, will be raised. Your body will be raised. Because of that, and because it will be fully restored and fully cleansed from all infirmity, all sin, there is a certain continuity between our pre-resurrection and post-resurrection bodies. What we will be in the future should be reflected now albeit imperfectly. So we should live in holiness now in anticipation of the perfect holiness we will have at the last day. Using our physical bodies for sin today is incompatible with the sinlessness that we will enjoy in a resurrected body when Christ returns. Dear ones, your body is headed for heaven, not hell. Your body is headed for glory, not the gutter. Your body is headed for the Savior, not Satan. So let where you are going and where your body is going affect the way you use it now. A body destined for resurrection glory should not be used for immorality. That is Paul's argument. Your body is destined for resurrected glory. Use it as it will be used for eternity to serve and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the union of Christ with your body should affect the present use of your body. The union of Christ with your body should affect the present use of your body. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. See, the apostle ex explains here that we should not be sexually immoral because we're in union with Jesus Christ. Our body is in union with Jesus Christ. Not just your soul. Your body's in union with Him too. We are members of His body and His members should not be united to others in illicit immorality. Already in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul hinted that the church is Christ's body and the divisions in the church are incompatible with that. But if Jesus came, think about this, brothers and sisters, if Jesus came and spent a week with you, would you live next week differently? He has, and he is, 
He has come to live with you. You are united to Him. Whatever you do, He does. It matters greatly to Jesus what you do with your body. Because as you do it, so He does it. When you look at pornography, Jesus is looking at pornography. When you engage in illicit immorality, Jesus is engaging in illicit immorality. You are in union with him. And how can we take the parts of our body, whatever we do with our body, and do it in a way that would be incommensurate with the union that we, our bodies have with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's Paul's argument. You do to Christ what you do in your body because you are in union with Jesus Christ. There's mystery there, right? I don't completely understand that. How can? But we do know that the Lord so identifies with his people in terms of his union with us that there is a certain sense in which that is true, that we are carrying about the life of Christ within us and we are taking Christ with us into all these various situations. Remember when the early church is being persecuted and specifically by Saul before he became Paul, the Lord comes and appears to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, he could have responded, he didn't, but he could have said, what are you talking about? I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your people. And Jesus would have said, exactly, exactly. The persecution that you do to them is the persecution you do to me. And would that not be true for other matters as well? If Jesus identifies with us in our persecution, would he not identify with us in other ways that our bodies are being affected? Surely he would. So our union with Christ should affect the present use of your body. Thirdly, the sin against your body should affect the present use of your body. The sin against your body should affect the present use of your body. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. Look at verse 18, second part. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul's not saying here, let me be clear, that every sexual union constitutes a marriage. That's not what he means. But he is saying that sexual relations forge a profound relationship between two people at the deepest possible levels. Sex is more than just a physical act. It's a spiritual union where two human beings become one flesh. Now, Paul uses that one flesh language for marriage because that's the appropriate context for sexual activity. And like I said, it doesn't mean that sex, all sexual unions consummate a marriage or create a marriage, but rather that in this act, there is hardwired within it a one fleshness that is intended to result in a marriage. Because that is the only appropriate context where it can be safely and fruitfully pursued. Because sexuality is hardwired by God to cement people together in a whole psychological and physical way. This is why when we sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. The apostle notes that sexual immorality is a sin against one's own body, whereas other sins are committed outside of our body. Other sins besides sexual immorality are bad, of course, but they don't actually join one physical body to another physical body. Sex involves the whole person, body and soul, in ways that other activities do not. 
So the ramifications are extensive, and human experience demonstrates this. Illicit sexual activity is particularly enslaving and very difficult to resist once people start engaging it. It's because you're meant to be drawn together. They also leave lasting memories embedded in our lives because of the nature of the act itself, because there's more than just a physical thing going on. There's an emotional thing. There's a psychological thing. There's a deeply spiritual thing happening, which is why our body's memory of it lasts well, decades, sometimes whole life. It carries emotional, relational, spiritual, and psychological ramifications with it. In 2012, a men's health magazine summarized eight harmful effects of pornography use. They indicated it's progressive, it creates unrealistic expectations, it can lead to casual sex, it amplifies emotional problems, it creates unhealthy sexual bonds, it counterfeits intimacy, it disrupts real relationships, it hurts your spouse. It's almost like what God said is true. As one theologian said, there's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. No one can take sex out at night and put it away until he wants to play with it again. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. It will make an imprint on your soul as it's intended to. There's no such thing as sex that's just physical. No matter what all the apps, the hookup apps tell you kids. It's not just physical. It's always more than that. In fact, Verse 18 says that when we sin sexually, the impact on our souls is more profound than other kinds of sin. There's no such thing as casual sex. It always has a profound impact on our souls. Fourthly, the divine person in your body should affect the present use of your body. The divine person in your body should affect the present use of your body. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. The Spirit of the Lord lives within you, dear one, making each of you, brothers and sisters, a little temple of the Holy Spirit. Just as the church corporately is a temple where the God Spirit dwells, so we as individual temples are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and his temple must not be defiled. It is the place of God's residence. The Holy Spirit lives with you, within you. You're not just joined to Christ, you're indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And that should affect the present use of your body. Fifthly, and finally here under the gospel perspective, is the price paid for your body should affect the present use of your body. The price paid for your body should affect the present use of your body. The end of verse 19, end of verse 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The Son of God became embodied to purchase you, body and soul. The triune God's design was for the eternal Son of the Father to become the God-man by virtue of the Holy Spirit, uniting him to a human nature just like ours. And the purpose of this embodiment was so that the Son of God, without spot or blemish, and perfectly prepared for his mission, would be the once-for-all bodily sacrifice for sin. The image that Paul gives here is that of a ransom payment, that we were bought with a price. We were paid for. 
the image is borrowed from the slave market. Christ's blood purchased us out of the slave market of sin into his own body, into his own kingdom, into his own church. See, sexual immorality reflects a failure to understand who owns us. We have been purchased from slavery to sin by the blood of Christ. He is our gracious, generous, and holy master. So we must serve him by striving for sexual purity. Through the death of Jesus, God has paid the price to bring you out of slavery and to make you his own. He wants you for his own. All of you. The body belongs to God. It does not, in the ultimate sense, belong to me or to you or to any other person. Our bodies, all of them, belong to the Lord. Think about this with me for a moment. I was reading in my devotional this morning, in my devotions, Romans 8, and I was thinking again about this idea of the Lord interceding for us and us being joined to Him. And I was thinking that the Holy Spirit is said to intercede on our behalf in Romans 8, 26. And in Romans 8, 34, the Son of God is said to intercede on our behalf, Jesus Christ. And I was like, why, is, why, why are both involved here? Why are both persons of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, Christ, both interceding for us? And I was thinking, they're pictured differently in the text as what they are, how they are interceding for us. The Holy Spirit is more like a lawyer standing with his client and counseling us what to say. Right? He fixes our prayers on, our, on the way up. He, he helps us in our weakness to know how we ought to pray. He's, he's, our, he's our counselor right beside us telling us what we should say. Whereas in Romans 8.34, Christ is portrayed more like an advisor who's sitting next to a judge who also happens to be personally known by the defendant and can vouch for him. So Paul expands this second analogy almost to the bursting point when he intimates that the judge is the father of the one sitting next to him and is willing to sacrifice the life of his own son for the sake of the defendant. So when we think about heaven, we think about we have a Holy Spirit who's with us, counseling us, helping us, advising us. We have a Son of God who's interceding for us advocating on our behalf before a judge who loves us, who's brought us into his family, and who loves to hear what his son has to say about us. All three members of the Trinity are for us. And so if God is so for us in this way, he is for our bodies and their use. God, by prohibiting sexual immorality, is not prohibiting anything from you. He's prohibiting what would destroy you. He's not prohibiting anything that is of eternal significance or value. Is in our sin, we think, well, that would be fun. And that's about as far as it gets. But God is not interested in giving us temporal, sensational fun. He's interested in preserving our humanity. Because he knows those sorts of acts will cost our humanity. It will make us more and more inhuman and less and less fitted for his habitation. I'm reminded of a preacher who once told a youth group, he was trying to get them to see the dangers of immorality, sexual immorality and sleeping around. And he spoke very negatively about sex. It was 
seeking to strike fear in all the hearts of the young people there. And as he did so, perhaps some of you have heard this illustration, in order to illustrate this reality, he took out a single rose and he passed it through the crowd of about a thousand young people and encouraged each one of them to grab that rose and handle it and touch it and smell it. You can imagine what the rose looked like when it finally went through the crowd and got back to him. It had started off as a beautiful rose, but in the end it was broken and drooping and with its petals all broken off. And the preacher stood up at the great climax of his sermon and said, Who would want this? Who would want this rose now? Would you be proud of this rose? Is this rose lovely? The message was just brutal. If you've been broken and experienced hurt or sinned sexually, the message was, you're worthless. Nobody wants you now. You've blown it. There was a young woman in the crowd that night who heard that message and felt shame and hurt. A few weeks later, she was in an accident. And in the hospital, she asked the friend who invited her that night, I'm just a dirty rose. But he began to explain to her that the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that while that pastor may not want you, and while he was telling you that no one else might want you, I'm here to tell you that there is someone who wants you, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus wants the rose. It's Jesus' desire to save, redeem, and restore us, failures and all. Jesus wants you. Don't let this sermon be a, well, I've blown it, so no sense trying now. Don't let that at all enter your brain. He wants you, sin and all. He wants to buy you for his own, out of that life. He wants to give you new life. You are so much more to him than your failures, your sins, and your hurts. He gives grace and hope and healing. Such were some of you, Paul says in the context of sexual immorality to a church at Corinth. But you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus wants the rose. Any among us here this morning feel that way? Anyone who's been being with us for a while and feeling defiled in whatever way and feeling like Jesus could never want me? Not after me. He's been preaching this holiness and I've blown it in any, any number of ways. Good grief, I've done stuff that isn't even in that list. Jesus wants you too. Jesus died to purchase you. The Holy Spirit wants to indwell your body too. As defiled as you feel like, like it is, it isn't too defiled for him. Because the blood is sufficient to wash you clean and make you a holy habitation of the Lord. It's not your acts of righteousness that make you clean. It's Christ's acts of righteousness. And when you're in union with him, you get as clean as he is. And that's the good news of the gospel. Because we are in union with Christ, God treats us as Christ. Just as much as Christ, just as much as the Holy Spirit, you know, imagine Christ asking, Father, would you give me the Holy Spirit, please? Well, son, I don't know. 
I don't know if your body's quite ready for that. Are you holy enough? Of course. The Son of God would not even have to ask for that. Well, if you're in union with Jesus and God sees you that way and you ask for the Holy Spirit, God's not relating to you on the basis, well, let's see, get your act cleaned up first. No, he looks at Christ, he sees you in union with him, and you get what he got. Isn't that the amazing good news of the gospel? That we are treated as Christ deserves? We are not treated the way our sins deserve. We are treated the way Christ deserves because Christ was treated the way our sins deserve. And brothers and sisters, it's that gospel perspective that informs the command in this passage. Flee sexual immorality. I'm not standing up here this morning and says, you're going to burn in hell. You're going to burn in hell. Now, is that a truth? Absolutely. But his truth here is, Christ purchased your body. The Holy Spirit indwells your body. Don't you sin against your body in ways that, are, that leave indelible marks on your body? Don't do that. You're joined to Christ. Your body's heading for resurrection. It's all gospel. And it's this gospel reality that motivates us. See, brothers and sisters, don't throw your theological brain out the window. It's deep and profound theology that will prepare you to face immorality. And one of the reasons the church is so awash in immorality is because it's so anemic in theology. If we don't have deep theology, you see how practical deep theology is? People say, oh, that's too deep for me. I could never understand. You want to live a sexually immoral life or or do you want to live a moral life? Do you want to please God or not? Better go deep. Better understand resurrection. Better understand union with Christ. Better understand the doctrine of the church. Better understand indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Better understand the work of the cross. All these things have practical import and bearing on our lives every day. Now, can good theology go wrong on us? Absolutely but only if it's unapplied. We apply it in these ways. So let me conclude now, fourthly, with the necessary response to sexual immorality. What's the necessary response? Paul gives it in two different ways in verse 16, 18, or first, sorry, verse 18 and verse 20. Look at verse 18 again. He says, flee from sexual immorality. And then in verse 20, he says, glorify God in your body. Same, same, same idea. So I want to conclude by being somewhat trite, I guess a little bit clever, and I hope it's helpful though, uh, and give you an acronym for FLEE, F-L-E-E, okay? Um, Hopefully this will help cement in your brain what I'm thinking about and what it means to flee something. All right, so first of all, F, fasten yourself to Christ. Fasten yourself to Christ. Paul reminds us that we pursue holiness because we're joined to the Lord. Look at verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, flee from sexual immorality. You see that? You're one spirit with the Lord. You're joined to the Lord. Flee. By faith, we're united to Christ in a way that's analogous to husband and wife. Once we are married to Jesus, we combine one spirit with him. And just as the husband and wife become one flesh. So to be one spirit with someone is more profound than to be one body with them. As, it claims both, as, it, as Jesus is claiming both the soul and the body. So the gospel's answer to the radical sin of sexual immorality is the more radical grace of union with Christ as our husband. Secondly, lock out the lies. Lock out the lies. 
Like Paul does with the Corinthians, we need to correct the ways of thinking that give rise to immorality. We need to redefine freedom. Freedom is not doing what we want apart from God. It's instead God putting in us so that what we want is what God wants by the power of the Spirit. Your body is important to God. It's more than physical urges. We need to lock out the lies that our body and our soul are not connected to one another. Thirdly, exchange lies for truth. We need to remember what our bodies are for. They're united to Christ, destined to be raised, indwelt by the Spirit, and purchased by Jesus' own blood. These truths should lead us to glorify God in our body. And then finally, letter D, fourth, we got fasten yourself to Christ, lock out the lies, exchange lies for truth. Engage your heart with the truth and act on it. See, it's not enough just to do a mental thing. We have to engage our heart in that and believe it deep down at the core of our being and allow it to shape our lives so that we act out of it. This is what Joseph did. The great example of fleeing sexual immorality in the Bible, right? Joseph, Genesis 39, I want you to see what was operative in his thinking that enabled him to run away from Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39, 6 to 12, and with this I close. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And so, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, do you see how his heart engaged with truth? He didn't just know certain things. His heart was engaged with the truth such that he, la- he, he latched onto it. It latched onto him, and it enabled him to get out of her latch. All right? How? He saw God's good hand on his life. He saw God's great grace and generosity to him. And this is what enabled him to flee. He didn't say, God is a fearful and consuming fire. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Although that could be true. He said, God has given me everything but you. All the trees of the garden you may eat, except this one. That one you may not eat from. You see how the generosity of God, the fact that God had treated him with such grace. See, sometimes we commit sexual immorality because we feel like we deserve it, right? We've had a hard life. I mean, I've had a hard life. I had a hard day. Let me get out my iPhone for a while. I've had a hard day. I deserve this. Who had a harder day than Joseph? This wasn't going to end well for him. He was going to jail for this. And he was going to sit in jail for a while. But what was occupying his mind? God is good. All the parameters that God has set about my life are good parameters. God has given me so much. He's made me in charge of Potiphar's house. I'm second in command around here. I I have everything. I have a great place to live. I have a great job. I serve a nice guy. And you're pursuing me because I'm a stud. Right? 
or whatever her motives were. It could have been other motives too. I mean, the text tells us just, uh, Joseph was handsome, but it doesn't tell us that was what motive, was mo necessarily motivating Potiphar's wife. It could have been other things going on there too. She could have been trying to, she could have been threatened by Joseph because he was doing his job so well. And she's like, okay, I know a way to get him out of here, right? I can commit adultery with him. The king will be mad at him, not me, because he was seducing me, so she'll say, or things like that. But Joseph was governed by this reality. My master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, and nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Brothers and sisters, that's true of you in Christ too. The master of the house, as we saw last week, has put you in charge of the universe. In, in a certain sense, he's not any more important than you are in the new heavens and the new earth because you're co-heirs with him. Isn't that crazy? You're a co-heir. He treats you as an equal even though we're not. Clearly not. And yet, he wants to rule with us alongside of him for all eternity. He's given all of this by grace. He's promised to redeem our body. He indwells us. He purchased us. We are united to him. We will reign over the new heavens and the new earth. We will judge the world. We will judge fallen angels. All this glorious news. But one thing he's kept back. Flee sexual immorality. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for your word, for both its warnings and its promises. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that orients our hearts and our minds to Christ and who he is and what he's done and provides all the motivation we need. Lord, fix our eyes on your generosity. We can so in our sin get so fixated on all the things we don't have or all which leads so many couples to engage in immorality and adultery. Oh, if my spouse was like this, or oh, if my husband was like this, I wouldn't have to do these things. Lord, help us to see that we have everything that we need in you. Help us to see that we are united to you, that we are indwelt by you. Anyone among us here this morning who is not united to the Lord Jesus Christ, may you draw them, knowing that, may they, may they sense in their own hearts, I don't want to be my own anymore. I want to belong to Jesus. I want to belong to a benevolent master because my own self-rule is tyranny. Lord, may some be led out of darkness into your marvelous light this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond. As we stand and sing.